Well, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Redemption Church. I'm glad that you guys are here this morning. Um, just by way of introduction, my name is Reggie, and uh, I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Redemption, and uh, I'm so very glad that you guys are here with us um, this morning. Um, so over the last uh, several weeks, or really throughout this whole summer, we've been going through a series in the book of Psalms based on the Psalms of Ascents. Now, specifically, the Psalms of Ascents are the Psalms collected um, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and these are Psalms um, that God's people would sing, uh, that pilgrims would sing as they're on their way to Jerusalem to worship, specifically probably for some festivals or specific events during the times of the year. And so as they're ascending up to Jerusalem, because to get to Jerusalem, you would go up from whatever direction you were coming. But as they were ascending to Jerusalem, they would be singing these songs uh, along the way. And we don't really know exactly how that works. Um, There's some theories that it was the further up you went, you sang them in order. We don't really know how all that worked out, but we know that that's probably what these songs were, right? So they're songs that that God's people, that pilgrims were singing on their way up to Jerusalem. And so specifically, we've been diving into them over the course of the summer, like I said. And, and here's part of the reason why. Part of what we want for you and part of what we want for us here at Redemption Church is something that we call gospel fluency. And when we talk about gospel fluency, we're talking about the gospel being integral to every facet of our life down to the everyday things. And for us to be gospelly fluent, like we're fluent in a language, But to be fluent in the gospel, it requires that we intentionally talk about it and rehearse it and remember it and immerse ourselves in its truths so that we can see how every part of our life from the mundane to the magnificent is ultimately transformed and affected by the gospel. And so in this series, we've recognized that our faith has the tendency to operate as if God is distant and hardly attached to every period or, or every part of our life and every period of our life and every context of our life. We, we know God is real, but our faith sometimes acts like God is distant, not concerned with our everyday lives and circumstances. And so the Israelites in the Old Testament and the Israelites, God's people who sang these songs, were scattered in exile by the time these psalms were collected. They felt this same tension. So the Psalms of Ascents, it serves to lift our heads toward God in the midst of an already not yet tension. The the already God has done something for us, but it's not yet fully realized. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. It causes us to lift our heads to the faithfulness of God and recognize that He is present, that He cares that he is with us, and that every part of our life is important. And in Christ, there's truly hope, peace, and courage for our everyday journey of discipleship. That's what this series is about. And so that's what we'll be talking about this morning, specifically looking at Psalm 132. So let's pray, and then we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you that you've called us to lift our eyes to you, 
God, thank you that even this morning as we gather in this place to hear your word, to sing together, to pray, to respond, to give, to do all the things we're going to do. God, thank you that in the midst of this, you've called us to lift our eyes to you, to look to Jesus. And so, God, it is my prayer and it is my desire that Jesus would be lifted high this morning, that we would look to you and that our hearts and lives would be drawn to you because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. And God, as I stand on this stage, I recognize that my words are of little importance. But God, your words are of utmost importance. And so God, may we hear from you. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. That Jesus would be lifted high and that hearts and lives would be changed. And God, we ask all this, we pray all this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One writer has said that the Psalms are an inspired record of our fight for faith. But by the time we get to Psalm 132, in the Psalms of Ascent, that fight has turned into an all-out brawl, turned into an MMA match. If there was ever a psalm about the already not yet tension of living in God's kingdom, Psalm 132 fits the bill. It's the longest psalm in this group of the Psalms of Ascents, and it's paramount and it's central to the overall theme of the Psalms of Ascents. It's a psalm where the first ten verses are spent remembering a promise that God made to David and ultimately to his people. And then the last part of the psalm, is expectantly waiting for God to do what he promised that he would do. It's, it's God has promised to do something for his people, and they're expectantly declaring that God will do it. But their present realities and their present circumstances don't match up with what's eventually going to happen. Let's read it. Psalm 132. It'll be up on the screen. Um, you can turn there in your Bibles. Like I said, it's the longest psalm in the psalm of ascent, 18 verses, but I'll go ahead and read through it all. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You in the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away from the face. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, 
His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. I remember as a young child that my favorite treat, my favorite thing in the world was a chocolate milkshake. Does anybody relate to that? Somebody does. And when I was a child, um, my dad had a couple of different motorcycles. And uh, I don't know how many of you guys are motorcycle people. Um, there we go. There's one. Um, so my dad had a couple of motorcycles. And this is in the early 80s. Um, right, think Stranger Things for those of you guys who watch that show on Netflix. Early 80s. And uh, my dad had a couple of motorcycles from the 70s. And uh, he really liked these old Honda motorcycles with the flat seat that sort of goes from the front to the back. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Um, but he had these motorcycles. And, um, and I had these two older siblings, two older half-siblings, that would come and stay with my family every now and then. Um, they didn't live with us full-time, but they would come and stay with us. And uh, every once in a while, my father would take us to go get a milkshake on the motorcycle. So I can remember as a small, small child sitting in front of my dad as he's driving a motorcycle to go to Dairy Queen to get a milkshake. But here's the thing, and I don't know why my dad did this, but he would always go from oldest to youngest, and he would only take one child at a time. So I can remember being very small, but watching my older brother or my older sister get on the motorcycle and ride off to go to Dairy Queen with my dad while I had to stay at home, right? They got to go first. I had to wait. My dad could only take one person at a time on the motorcycle, and I would go last. And so I'd have to watch my dad leave and come back and leave and come back. And eventually, eventually, I knew that I was going to get that milkshake. I knew that I was going to get that thing that I wanted more than anything else in the world, but I didn't have it yet. I knew that I would get it, and that first taste of that chocolate milkshake would be glorious, but I didn't have it yet. I had to wait and expectantly trust that my father would do exactly what he said he would do. This psalm is neatly divided into two parts. It's a petition and a response. It's a remembrance and an expectation that God will do what he said he would do. From a genre standpoint, I think it's really important to see something about this psalm to fully understand what's going on here. We've talked about this before, but the psalms are really ancient Near Eastern poetry. And when we talk about poetry in our modern context, we think about like music on the radio or we think about uh, poetry from literature class and we think about things that rhyme and neatly fit together in stanzas. And ancient Near Eastern poetry wasn't like that, right? What was important was symbolism and parallelism and structure. Those are the things that made it poetry in that context. And if you look at the psalm from a structural standpoint, what you begin to see is that the first five verses are a petition for something, and verses 11 and 12 are the answer to that position. 
right? So in verses 1 through 5, it's a plea to remember the desire of David to build a house for God to dwell within, right? The temple. And in verses 11 and 12, there's an answer that God will remember what he promised David instead. In verses 6 and 7, there's a plea that God will be worshipped in his dwelling place in Zion. And in verses 13 through 15, there's a response about where God will dwell so that he can be worshipped in his dwelling place. In verse 9, there's a plea that godly worship will exist. And in verse 16, there's a response that godly worship will exist. In verse 10, there's a plea that God will not turn away from his people. And in verses 17 and 18, there's a response that God will cause the salvation that comes from David to prosper in such a way that no enemies will stand against the horn of salvation, right? It's a plea and it's a response. It's a petition and an expectation. That's what this psalm is. God, remember what you said to David. And God, we're going to worship you because we know that you're going to do what you said you're going to do even though in our present realities, in our present circumstances, we don't have the fulfillment of that promise yet. That's what's going on in this psalm. The first part of the psalm looks back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God made a promise to King David. We'll talk more about that shortly. I just referenced it a second ago. But the promise is that David would have a son who would reign as a king forever and ever over a rescued and restored Israel. That's where this psalm looks back to. But this psalm looks forward to Luke chapter 1, where John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, in response to John the Baptist's birth, in response to John the Baptist's mission, directly connects Psalm 132 to Jesus as being the horn of salvation that God promised in Psalm 132. And we'll look at that in just a second. And so they're looking back to what God promised, they're looking forward to a fulfillment that they don't even know what the fulfillment's going to look like yet. And they're expecting God to do something. But at the end of Psalm 132, uh, in verse 18, it says this, His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Ultimately, Psalm 132 is looking at the end game. When the king that's going to rule forever is not wearing a crown of thorns, but a crown that shines... And is reigning over everything. We're talking in game in Psalm 132. But keep in mind the psalm was probably written. And is definitely being sung at a time when the promises it references are not being fulfilled. And so uh, there is this tension. There's these two competing realities of the now but not yet. God is going to do something. But we're not fully experiencing that yet. Throughout much of its history, Israel found itself in deep sin and deep idolatry. The chosen people of God just couldn't seem to listen to him for long. And because of that, judgment ensues and they are taken captive by foreign powers and they're in exile. And before we judge them too quickly, right, we need to recognize that we're not that much different. And so by the time the Psalms of Ascent are collected, captivity is where the people of God have found themselves. And the stage has been set for these two competing realities of the now, but not yet, to come head to head. And God promises greatness and blessing through the line of David. 
But right now, they're surrounded by turmoil and captivity, and things don't look like what God promised. God said something's going to happen. They're remembering what God said, but their present reality is totally different. And eventually, these two competing realities lead to one central question. Is God going to keep his promise? Is God going to do what he said? If we're honest, how many of us have ever asked ourselves that question? Anybody? Am I the only one? Probably not. So let's look at 2 Samuel 7 real quick and see exactly what God says about this promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said, I mean, David says, I want to build God a temple. I have a house that I live in. God has a tent, the tabernacle. I don't want God to have a tent. I want God to have a house like me. And so I want to build God a temple. So David talks to the prophet Nathan and tells him this. Nathan goes away and comes back and says, David, it's not for you to build a temple. That's going to be for one of your offspring to do. But let's look specifically at what's said to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. I'll give you a minute to turn there if you would like. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17. When your days, speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So you see what's happening here. There's a promise that the prophet Nathan brings back to David. Part of it is partially fulfilled in David's offspring, specifically Solomon coming right after David. And ultimately, it's looking forward to Jesus, right, the king that will rule forever. And so God comes back to David through the prophet Nathan And says, I know that you want to build God a house, but instead, God is going to build you a house. God's going to build you a legacy. God's going to build you a kingdom that lasts forever. Before we came into the book of Psalms over the last year and a half, uh, we looked, or maybe even longer, we looked at the book of Matthew, and we saw how Jesus is the fulfillment of that promised coming king, right? We looked at that for a long time, and so we know that's what this is about. Here, in Psalm 132, specifically references a couple of other Old Testament stories about David, about David bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, um, and about David being enthroned as king. But the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 is what's key in Psalm 132. I'm going to build you a house that lasts forever. And in Psalm 132, specifically in verses 1 through 10, God's people are remembering that promise and petitioning God to not forget it. God, remember what you promised David. God, remember what you said you were going to do. And in verses 11 through 18, God's people in faith are responding 
even as they live in the tension of the now but not yet. They've remembered, they've petitioned, and then in the second part, they are singing what they know God's response to be, even though they don't have it. Right, have you ever waited on something? Have you ever placed an order with Amazon and it said it would be there at Tuesday by 8 and Tuesday at 8 rolls around and your new shoes aren't there? Have you ever waited on something? Have you ever gone to a job interview and left and hoped and prayed that that phone call would come, that you got the job? Over the past couple of weeks in my job, I've had the opportunity to interview several people And I can't help but think as they get up to leave the interview and leave the building and walk away, I can't help but feel the tension that they're feeling. They think maybe that they ace the interview and they get a call back. They think maybe they bomb the interview and they're not going to get a call back. But there's tension, there's expectation, there's fear because they're waiting on that phone call. And I feel that tension for them as they walk away because I've experienced and I know what it's like. And God's people are waiting. They're living in that tension of the now but not yet. They're they're right in the middle of that. But look at what they do in the middle of that tension. Look at what they sing about. In Psalm 132.11, it says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. They're singing about how God's promises are sure (coughs) and true and irrevocable. Even though their present circumstances, they don't see the fulfillment of that promise. In verse 13 and 14, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. They're singing about how God is present with his people in his land. They're singing about the Emmanuel principle that God is with us even though they've experienced captivity and defeat and chaos. In verse 15, they sing, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. They're singing about how God provides for them even though God led them into captivity. In verses 17 and 18, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. They're singing about God's ultimate salvation that we know to be in the person of Jesus. That's what they're singing about. They may not have known they were talking about Jesus, but they're singing about Jesus. And when they talk about a horn of salvation, think a horn as something Strong is something powerful like the horns on a bull. Right? It's a symbol of God's power to save. And ultimately, they're singing about God's salvation in Jesus, even though they may not have understood that's what they were singing about. Flip over real quick to Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 75. Luke 1, verses 68 through 75. This is where I mentioned a second ago, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is responding to John's birth His purpose on earth, the fact that Jesus is about to be born, and that John the Baptist is there to announce the salvation that's coming through God in the person of Jesus. And look at what he says. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up (coughs) a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Psalm 132, Luke 1, Jesus. It's a long way from Psalm 132 to Luke 1. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years. We're talking lots of journeys up to Jerusalem as these pilgrims go to worship every year. Hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting for God's promised salvation. Until Jesus shows up. Hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting and expecting God to do what he said he would do. That's some tension, right? That's some now, but not yet. That's, whew, right? That hurts a little bit. And on this side of the cross, we have this new creation redemption that Jesus has accomplished for us. But we have this old creation setting in which we're left to live. We have promises deep and wide (coughs) enough to make our praise loud and sure, but we have situations so bleak and so sad that we can barely lift our heads to Jesus. Right? How do we sing praises to God and be so sure of his salvation, like these pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, when our world is sometimes so dark? A world where human life is devalued, where people are made to suffer at the hands of others, where people are daily killed because of religious ideology, where thousands of babies have their lives ended every year in utero, where racism wreaks havoc and governments commit atrocities, And the godless get more gain. God, how do we sing your song of praise in the midst of that tension? And to take it a little further, how do we sing your praises? God, when I can't pay my bills at the end of the month. God, how do I sing your praises when our marriages have open conflict? God, how do I sing your praises when I'm so lonely and so disconnected and so fearful? God, how do I sing your praises when parenting is so hard and I'm just tired? How do we sing your praises when we're mired in our own sin and our own failures? How do we sing your praises when it's hard just to demonstrate the love of Jesus to our neighbors? How do we sing your praises in the midst of that tension to where, God, you've made us a new creation? But man, it's hard. It's hard to walk that journey of discipleship. The Israelites remembered what God had done for them through David, and they were looking for God to do it 
again. For us, we know what God has done for us through Jesus, that he's defeated Satan's sin and death for all time, that he's promised to redeem and reconcile all things to himself, to make things as they should be, not as they are. And we're on the road home to that peace and reconciliation. We're on the road home to that shalom, looking for God to ultimately fulfill his promises of peace and joy. But we're not there. And life is hard. And we might have thought that this great salvation we enjoy means smooth sailing from here on out. We might have expected that since we are in Christ, the kingdom is complete and the waiting is over and everything's going to be okay. That's not how it feels. And that's not our present reality. Even in all this grace that Jesus has given us, We're not home yet. And even in all this grace, overcome with all this glory, one look around confirms that we're not home yet. And there's a new Jerusalem for which we long, just like the Israelites on the way to the old Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem for which we long, toward which we are journeying, a lasting city upon which our hope is set through Jesus and in the midst of that, we're called to what one, reader ha- I mean, one writer has called a kind of praise that we didn't plan. God, we wouldn't have de- designed it this way. We wouldn't have made it be this hard. But God has let us taste a joy that defies this world. And how do we sing the Lord's song here? we humbly realize that for now, the new humanity that is created around Jesus is not a humanity that is always going to be successful, that's always going to be in control, but a humanity that simply can reach out its hand in the midst of chaos to Jesus. We're in a fight of faith every day. You and I, on our journey of discipleship, are in a fight of faith. Every day there are things that are fighting for the affections and the attentions of our hearts and minds. Every day. The things that are fighting for you to worship them are probably different than the things that are fighting for me to worship them. Your idols are not my idols. But every day our idols are fighting for our attention. They're fighting for our heart's affection. They're fighting for our mind's attention. And in the midst of that brawl, in the midst of that brawl, we know that Jesus is with us. Just like God promised to be with his people in Psalm 132, we know that Jesus is with us. Home's not that far away. Like the Israelites in Psalm 132, we know that God's promises are sure. We know that God will be with us. He's present with us. He hasn't left us. We know that God will provide. We know that Jesus has accomplished something on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves, and so we move on. We journey. We fight together. We journey not to a modern-day city, but to an eternal home where God will make everything as 
it should be. I started off at the very beginning talking about gospel fluency. And right, and this is where gospel fluency begins to take hold when we connect the truths of Scripture like Psalm 132 to the everyday realities of life. In the midst of financial difficulty, we remember that God provides, maybe not in the way we want Him to, but God provides. The journey will be tough, but God provides. And so when things get tough financially, what's your first instinct? What do you do to solve the problem? Do you run to God in prayer? Do you remember his promises as you await his deliverance? Do you continue being faithful with every dollar that you save, spend, and give? Do you seek wise counsel on how to proceed? Or do you just worry and make your own plans, make your own schemes? When we're lonely and disconnected, we know that God is near and present, and that he's given us a church and a community. And so when we're lonely, when we feel isolated, when we feel afraid, what's our first response? Do we run to the gospel community that God has given us and placed us in that exists to bear our burdens? Or do we run to Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat and look for some connection that's not real? Do we remember God's promise of a spirit, not of fear, but of power and a sound mind? What are we doing to connect the reality of the gospel to our loneliness and to our isolation? When our marriages are rough, when parenting is tough, we remember that God's promises are sure and true. When it's hard, do we retreat from the community that God has given us to go figure this out on our own? Or do we dive in further, allowing those around us to speak the gospel into difficult situations over and over and over? Here's a word of wisdom. Over the last, I'm old. Tomorrow I'll be 42. Um, Over the last 20 years that I've been involved in ministry, I've seen people in relationships, when things get hard, they retreat from gospel community. They run away. It doesn't matter if they're engaged. It doesn't matter if they're dating. It doesn't matter if they're married. But when things get hard, people retreat from gospel community. Guys, that is the wrong instinct. The gospel community is there for you to dive into, for it to support you and encourage you. When we constantly fail in our own sin, we remember that God has defeated Satan, sin, and death for all time. And that God has given us brothers and sisters to hold us up and guide us into overcoming those mistakes together, not alone. When our world is bleak, we remember that we have a hope and a Savior that will eventually make all things right and as they should be. And so in the midst of a difficult world like the pilgrims in psalm 132 do we still continue to praise god expecting god to come through even though it might be a praise that we didn't plan god it doesn't look like what i planned but i'm going to continue to praise you in the midst of some very difficult circumstances god has proven himself true God has proven himself true. Israelites knew it. The pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem knew it. 
even though they may not be currently living in the midst of that ultimate fulfillment. And for us, as we eagerly await God to ultimately do everything that he said he was going to do, we can connect the gospel to every facet of our lives by following the example of the Israelites here, by looking at Psalm 132 and knowing that in the midst of difficult situations, God is present. We can still praise God that he's going to provide. We can still praise God that he's going to come through. We can still praise God that he's with us, even though it may not seem like it in the midst of a very difficult life and a very difficult time. Connecting the truths of the gospel to everyday life. Connecting the truths of the gospel to everyday life. Life. In some sense, that's exactly what these pilgrims were doing. Connecting the realities of God's promises to their journey, even though their current journey looked a lot different than they probably wanted it to. Are you with me? You guys got it? We're going to move into a time of response. And every Sunday here at Redemption, uh, we have a time of response. It's a time for us uh, to do a few things, right? It's a time for us to sit where we are and reflect on what God has spoken to our hearts and minds, even as we've been together this far. What what is God speaking to us? What is God saying to us even now? So I would encourage you, if God is dealing with you in a very personal way right now, I encourage you to sit where you are, pray, reflect on those things. Grab somebody and talk about it if you need to. Um, but, But don't walk away dealing with something if you need to deal with it. During this time, we have an opportunity to uh, stand and sing. Uh, the band will come back up, give us an opportunity to worship through singing uh, in just a few minutes. You have an opportunity to give in the back. There's a giving basket. You can put your tithes and offerings and, and worship through giving. Um, and during this time as well, we have an opportunity to take communion. Every Sunday at Redemption, we take communion. We come down this middle aisle. We take the bread, tear it off, dip it in the wine or juice. And in doing that, we're remembering what Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming that we believe it, right? That's what Scripture tells us about communion, what communion is. When we take communion, it's a visible representation of saying, I remember what Christ has done through his sacrifice, through his broken body, through his shed blood. God, I remember that, and I'm doing this because I believe it, and I am proclaiming that I believe it, by coming forward and taking part in communion. Now, if you're here, and that's not something that you can remember or proclaim, that I would encourage you to stay right where you are and not take communion. Not because we want you to stand out, but because I don't want you to come and do something that you can't honestly say and do. But if you're here, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, and you're a follower of Jesus, and you want to come and remember what Christ has done and publicly proclaim that I believe it, And let me encourage you to come and take communion and worship in that way. I'm going to uh, pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll move on with this time of response. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder that we can connect the truths of your promises to our everyday life. Thank you for the way that you've proven yourself true. Thank you that you've proven yourself sure. Thank you that you have come through for us. 
that you've given us your son that makes a way for us to be right with you. And God, because of that, we continue to worship. Because of that, we continue to lift our praise. Even in the midst of this tension that is our life, God, we know that we can worship and count on you. And God, even now, help us to continue looking to you, being changed by you. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.